Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the cool air that is in this building. Thank you for the, the reminder of the seasons. That there are seasons that are hot and heat, and heat is filled, fills our life. And heat has the biblical metaphor understanding of having pressure associated with it. And we recognize there's seasons. And, and in all of the midst of the seasons, we recognize that uh, you are the God who is sovereign over it all. You're the God who has designed this. You are the God who is in control over all of, all of life, all of created order. You are the God that we seek for fullness of comfort when we don't understand fullness, don't have fullness of understanding. We come to you knowing that it's enough that you do. We thank you for this time together. Please guide us through the person of your Holy Spirit in all truth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay. Uh, couple of things. Um, there are questions. We're not going to do, where's Mark? There we go. Um, you don't have to run around, Mark, until we get to any of the questions. I'm just going to bring us through this until we get to a question, and then we'll, we'll take that on. Hopefully, it'll provoke some thought. Um, s- this particular book, I was, you know, Pastor Pete was originally going to do it, and then he got called out, and then it got shifted to me. This is one of those in the providence of God. I am so thankful the way it worked out because I found myself studying this book differently because of some of the things that have gone on in our church and in our city in my personal life as far as the death, the suffering and death of, of Annie, of Steve. Uh, my father-in-law was last December. Mark's uh, lost his father. We've had a lot of suffering and, and, and you, each of you, have had other issues in your own lives that uh, I could go on and on about. So um, this, hopefully, today will be such a, a moment. I, I wrote this for myself, if that helps you. This is a handout I wanted for myself as a reminder of this book. And so it's written in somewhat of a, the questions are somewhat devotional in nature so that we can draw things out from them. So with that, let's, let's go ahead and get into the, the crux of it, some of the background. We deal with, uh, again, we're in, we're in class 16, and this is Job. And I do want to make mention, um, we're using, I am using particularly a biblical theology, uh, theological introduction to the Old Testament, the gospel promised. And uh, this book, uh, in particular this week, was the author is Richard Belcher, Jr., who is the son of Gary Moss's former pastor, Richard Belcher Sr. So it's just interesting. Um, he has a number. Richard Belcher Sr. has a number of books that are wonderful books, as well as The Son does. Um, this one, The Son just knocked it out of the ballpark on this one. He's, he brought things to light in the book of Job that I've not heard anyone share before. And so I'm anxious to, to, to share that with you. In addition, I use two other authors, and the devotion questions are my own, just on questions I was thinking of when I was reading some of the, this and going over the book of Job. The, really, the main book, by the way, the main resource is the Bible. The other guys are just giving their commentary on it. So with that, the author is unknown. Lots of speculation on who it might be. We're never told who the author is. The date, this is interesting. The date moves anywhere from the patriarchal era all the way up to uh, at least to Ezekiel, because in Ezekiel he references Job. So in theory, it could go all the way up to Ezekiel. 
I personally agree with and take a stand on the, it's be, him, this book being uh, originally, I'll say it this way, maybe not written, but certainly uh, occurred in the patriarchal era. So with that, let's look at some of the facts that help support that. Uh, Job's wealth was measured in livestock, which we have seen uh, some of that done uh, by way of some of the other uh, folks in the Bible in their patriarchal area. Again, Job functioned as a priest for his family by offering sacrifices on their behalf. We saw that in the patriarchal period. The death of Job was described like the death of Abraham in two ways. It was recorded that Job lived 140 years. That's a long time until you realize who else in the, 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 the span of the Bible were li- was living about that amount of time. And we see that, uh, in this, that, that his, the length of his life is in line with the length of the lives of the patriarchs. Abraham lived 175, Isaac, Isaac was 180, Jacob was 147. And although Joseph is not a patriarch, um, he closes the, 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 the error of the patriarchs, um, and he lived to be 110. So we can see that the lifespan was consistent with that time. Um, in addition, Abraham was described at his death as quote, an old man and full of years. That's Genesis 25, 20, or 25, 8. And Job was described as an old man and full of days. Again, the same kind of descriptors being used, which happens in literature. You see uh, phraseologies, types of, uh, of ways to refer to things staying consistent with time periods. We do the same in our own culture and time period. Okay, uh, and then la- the last one there, in, um, which is interesting, in the last point, point four, the patriarchs regularly referred to God as Shaddai, um, which means Almighty, the Almighty One, El Shaddai, God, of, God Almighty. Uh, and that name is used 31 times in this book. No other book has it that many times. Again, that's a name that's a favorite name of the patriarchs. So another reason to see that this most likely occurred, in my opinion, during the patriarchal uh, uh, period. So let's take some insight into Job, and this is fascinating. Some of you may have just thought, well, we're, this is Old Testament. We know we're reading about the Jews, the Hebrews, so Job must be a Hebrew. Well, he's not a Hebrew. He's not an Israelite. He was from the land of, of uh, Uz, actually, is how you would say it in um, Hebrew. In Hebrew, the U is actually U, U. It's not a, uh, like, like land of Uz, we think it is. And that's from Job 1.1. <clears throat> he was referenced as being from the people of the east in Job 1.3 which most likely refers to the areas of Edom, Moab, and Ammon, which are the nations on, the, on Israel's southeastern border. So if you're looking at a map, they're down into the bottom right. Really, they start about midsection, and then they go all the way down to the right area there. So that gives you an idea of where uh, this, is, this whole storyline is taking place, geographically speaking. And then uh, point number four on uh, insight into Job, he believed in the God of Israel. We see this. We saw Melchizedek um, as this, this man who knew how he was the, the, the prince of peace, this odd figure that, that seemed to worship and know uh, the God of Israel, uh, of the Israelites, the God of Abraham, and yet he's not part of the covenant. Here you see somebody who is not part of the covenant again. In fact, remember we saw just um, in... Exodus, um, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, he professes that, that the God of Israel is the God most high, and he's not in the covenant. So we see God working outside and people outside of the covenant people. So this dynamic 
is, is consistent through the Bible. So when we get to Job, we, we shouldn't be taken back and go, oh, no, he has to be an, an Israelite, otherwise this can't be right. No, that's not the case. He believed in God, in the God of Israel, and even refers to God as, which is amazing, he calls him not the God of Israel, I mean, uh, but rather Lord or Yahweh, and we know that Yahweh is the covenant name. That's, to me, that's, that's even further uh, interesting because he must understand the covenant that, that Israel is in with Yahweh in order to call him that name, in addition to the, um, being named Shaddai or Almighty. Uh, and then we see with genre, the prologue and the epilogue were written in Hebrew narrative, pro. That's the easy stuff to, to know. It, it's, a, it's telling a story. We all can understand prose. And then the whole rest of the book. So it's, it's bookend by prose, but the entirety of the rest of the book is in poetry, which for, for some of us who are not as not abstract or abstract thinking isn't your your number one go-to, you, like, you, you think in concrete ways, poetry can be challenging because I, I pulled the definition from Britannica, um, and if you'll see it right on any genre, it's that, that uh, next sentence that says, poetry is literature that evokes a concentrated imaginative awareness. And we've talked about how imagination is from God, it is not evil. We, what happens with the wording is we start to get an idea in our minds of what's taking place greater than what the words would restrict it to. So poetry is designed to give you more imagery. So poetry is literature that evokes a concentrated imaginative awareness of experience or a specific emotional response, which is packed. That is a huge portion of Job. The emotional response that he is demonstrating here through language chosen and arranged for its meaning, sound, and rhythm. Okay, so that's the genre. So if you're having difficulty with, um, you know, the, that, all of the, the wording between the, the prologue and the epilogue, I get it. it takes, sometimes we have to go over and over and we have to use um, different sources to try and figure out what's going on in this poetry. I, I don't get it. Okay, so let's look at the structure and the outline. We've got the prologue in, in chapters 1, uh, starting with verse 1, all the way through chapter 2, 13. Then you have Job's lament. From three, all of chapter 3 is Job's lament. And I want you to, sometimes we don't understand what a lament is, so I put the definition in here. It, a lament is a prayer-like way. It's not always a prayer, but it's a prayer-like way. And I think it is, that's what really characterizes what Job's going through. God is always in the focus when Job is lamenting. That might be another helpful way of thinking about the lament. He's not just venting. He's got God in focus as he's, as he's expressing sorrow, pain. Here's key to Job. Confusion and regret. You can, and, and there is much more going on in there. But that gives you a, an idea of what a lament, uh, what takes place in a lament. Then we see the cycle of speeches, chapter 4, verse 1, through all the way through uh, chapter 27, verse 23. Interesting enough, it's three cycles. Um, we see in Revelation, three cycles. We see a lot of the, the threes emphasize uh, uh, the, the, what's going on within the cycle, so that gives us an appreciation. The wisdom poem, I've never heard of that referred to. Chapter 28 is the wisdom poem. 
If you read chapter 28, and I'm, I'm writing this so it draws you back to it. We don't have time to get to it. If you go look and say, the wisdom poem, I need to read chapter 28 again. Watch what uh, Job unwittingly professes. I suggest to you it's unwittingly because you will see in his confusion he is professing something else. And yet what comes out of his mouth in 28, you go, wow. Interesting. That sounds like divinely inspired speech. I don't know that you realize it, Job, because it would help bring more context to what you're accusing God of if you'd listen to your words in 28. So it's called, it's called the wisdom poem. Um, then you've got uh, Job's last speech, 29, uh, verses, uh, verse 1 through uh, 37, verse 24. And then there's Elihu's speeches. And we're going to talk about Elihu. Elihu is interesting. We'll get to him in a little bit. He's 32, chapter 32, verse 1, through 37, verse 24. And then we have God's speeches and Job's response, uh, chapter 38, verse 1, through chapters, uh, the final chapter, 42, verse 6. And then the epilogue begins in chapter 42, verse 7, and ends the book in, in verse 17. So we have some idea of the structure and what's going on with it. So let's look at the themes. And does everyone have a handout? Okay, I just want to make sure, because if you don't have a handout, this is going to be really confusing, because I've written it all down, so that, and I'm moving with somewhat of speed so we can get to the, the questions. And I don't want to leave anybody trying to figure it by just hearing it. All right, so uh, themes. Job wrestles with the perceived injustice. Notice perceived injustice of the actions of God. He's directing the perceived injustice towards God. That's what Job's doing. He's not directing it to other people. Um, uh, uh, let me read, start over again. Job wrestles with the perceived injustice of the actions of God in this world, which leads to three questions. It's key that you recognize the word, the verb, wrestles. That is key to Job. Job, if you'll follow the book of Job, there is new information being incorporated in as he wrestles with the truth of what it feels like he's going through. He gets raw and real with God, and more information comes out as he expresses it and as other people uh, come into the picture. Other characters are brought into it. If you miss that, you will think that, well, Job's, Job was just wrong when he was wrong, and Job was right was, when he was right, and I need, just need to be with that, like that. Don't see it as something black and white. See it as an experience. We all go through suffering. We all know, well, I should say, we have varying degrees of knowledge of of the doctrines of God, that comes to bear in our suffering, and suffering becomes some a way to really experience God if you are wrestling with God, as Job does, through your experience in suffering. So remember that. That's, the, that's one of the big takeaways. So um, Job wrestles with the perceived injustice of, of the actions of God in this world, which leads to three questions. Is God just? Does God run the universe on the strict principle of justice? And how is Job's suffering to be explained in light of all that? Great questions we all have when we're going through suffering. Okay, so um, let's take a look at... Oh, I I have one comment more to go in that area before we move on. None of these questions are directly answered. Fascinating. Back to the wrestling theme. God doesn't come out and say, Okay, Nick, get this right. This is what's going on. He indirectly answers all of those questions. 
but you have to wrestle and see it in the text in order to understand it. You have to also wrestle in your own life to, to, to see it and comprehend it to the degree that you've experienced this reality. If your knowledge is only intellectual and you allow it to stay intellectual, you will miss what God is doing in the midst of your suffering. So let's continue on. Let's get to the Satan. What is and the Satan's? Um, I'm referencing what Pastor Pete taught us. This is actually a title. God doesn't even dignify him with a personal name. He is only ever given a title. That's, that's the purpose. That's to, to give him lack of respect. He is the Satan. Um, if you were to read it directly from the Hebrew or, and later in the Greek. The, which means the adversary or accuser. Uh, so what is the Satan's position on God and Job? Because he's going to reveal that and what questions he asks or basically what challenges he brings forward to God. And the first one, the Satan challenges the character of God. You may not have realized that that was a challenge. That's a shot over the bow of God when he, when he words it the way he does about uh, Job. God, excuse me, so the Satan challenges the character of God by implying that people only love God for what he has done for them. In other words, or therefore, God is unworthy of being loved by virtue of who he is. He only loves you. Job only loves you because of what you do for him, not because of who you are. So the shot isn't at Job at, at this point so much as it is a shot at God. So the next point, as it relates to Job, the Satan also challenges the faith of Job by identifying it with self-interest. Job's piety is only a result of his prosperity. He's only holy. He is only who he is in character and in alignment with God because God has made him to prosper. No wealth. He's, not, he's got no character there. It's no foundation of character. So the question is, how are the Satan's challenges helpful to the wrestling experience intended for the reader? That would be you and me. How are the Satan's challenges helpful to the wrestling experience intended for the reader? Mark, you've got the, the microphone if anyone wants to try and answer that. And I know it's early and some of you haven't been, received your caffeine dose yet, so the, the wheels aren't actually turning very well. I'll, I'll, I'll prime the pump and say, oh, is it somebody? All right, Jane, jump in there. Nothing real profound, but um, I think Satan just vocalizes the questions that we might have in that situation um, when we see um, difficulties, you know, do we want to blame God? We want to, um, to question what God is doing and how can this be and how can he love me? Um, and let this happen to me. And I think Satan kind of voiced those questions for us. Yeah, I think you're dead on, spot on. Is God worthy to be praised, to be worshipped in our suffering? Ow, oh, that'll hurt. Because he feels far off because you're suffering? Because I'm suffering? Because terrible things are happening? That weren't a cause of sin that I have done or you have done? Is God worthy of being suffered, or excuse me, of being worshipped based on who he is in the midst of dark providence, difficult, painful, sorrowful, 
grieving times. Another way is, uh, and you, going off of what you said, Jane, is do I only really trust and worship God when things are good? That, that's a soul searcher. Because sometimes my accusations, I become the adversary, I become the Satan, my accusations towards God, though raw and real and God will, will engage me because I am his son, my accusations are off, they're wrong. And I justify them because of my pain. That they must know that he must be wrong, this can't be happening. Go ahead. I was just thinking through, you know, obviously the Sunday school series that we went through before, and then also I was thinking through what PJ uh, preached some time ago about kind of that courtroom of God. So you, in all of this, just picturing the scene of the Satan still has access to God. He hasn't been cast down. Christ hasn't come yet. So there he is. He's in that courtroom, and he's bringing an accusation against God's people, and as you are pointing out, it's a it's a backhanded accusation, really, against God. Even though it's, you know, it's like Job is a, an object lesson, and the accusations against God. But really, the Satan is saying more about himself than he is about God. You know, in in his questions, he's so. Anyway, I don't know. It's just picturing the whole thing, and that there he is accusing, and then. God allowing the accusation, willingness to hear the accusation, and then to, of course, put Job to the test as a result. Yeah. It's interesting that he's actually doing the same thing he did in the garden. In some sense, he's accusing God's character. Go ahead, and uh, Rob Roy's got a comment. He's attacking God's character. This may seem kind of radical. Perhaps the question isn't, do we only worship when things are good? But in the book of Job, do we even worship when things are good, mm. is the question. And that's the accusation. He's only worshiping because things are good, which is to say he's not really worshiping you. Mm. He's worshiping the gift, not the giver. So let's see if he's really worshiping when things are good by making things bad. Because if he worships when things are bad, then when things are good and he's worshiping, then that's, that would mean that even when things are good, he's worshiping. And that's really convicting. Amen. Because if it's, if it's framed the other way, we're assuming that we actually worship when things are good. Is that true? I think that's the real question here. One of the, the uh, building on that, Rob Roy, the suffering is a gift of grace that can shock us out of that which we don't even recognize when we're not worshiping because things are good. We don't even realize we're not really worshiping. Things are good, we're worshiping the gift. So when we're given the, the gift of a dark providence, then it allows us to reassess our God in the midst of the providence and, and make a judgment call of, am I really worshiping you? So... The dark becomes the good. The bad, what, God, what Satan says is evil, God says is good. Oftentimes what we say is evil, 
God says, are you willing to trust me that I can use it for your good? Now, was there somebody else that was going to comment? Now, I, I love that you just mentioned uh, trust there, Nick, and I love the things Rob Roy said. Um, so the dark times are the times that really test our trust, right? Yeah. Um, good times and blessings don't test our trust, right? So, and, and when we look at Scripture, and I can't give you verses and things right now, but where you put your trust is what you worship. Okay, so <laughs> God is gracious to us to give us the dark, hard times to do just the things that y'all are saying, you know, to test, to test our faith in him, to test our trust in him, to trust our uh, worship of him um, so that we are sanctified, you know, uh, so that we're prepared to worship him forever in heaven. Amen. Thanks. And we have to, and I'm using the verb again, we have to wrestle with ourselves. We have to, to ask ourselves, we've got to stop, slow down, and say, do I really believe this? Go ahead, Joe. I think, too, for me, it's helpful because I question, can you, you know, I think we question sometimes, can we lose our faith in, uh, in God, and things get really bad, and uh, I think it was, God proved to, proved to me, at least, in, in this, that how unbreakable the faith, the saving faith he gave me is, that no matter what happens, to Job, he did that faith, saving faith. If you have that saving faith, it's it's unbreakable. Amen. Amen. Gary, you know one thing that uh, Glenn and I are uh, discovering is that during those dark times that uh, Sean was talking about, is when God does His greatest work in our lives. It's it's precisely that time that we we understand how much we depend on Him, and that He's the only way to He's the only path that we have to get through those dark times. And on the other side of that, it, it's, it's a glorious time that, that he allows us to get through it and our relationship with him is stronger and it's more viable and we just appreciate what he does for us each day um, better. Dennis and then uh, Rob Roy. So I think while we look at our faith growing when things are rough and tough, I think we should challenge to see what is our faith doing when things are good, right? Because yeah, yeah, we, we, everybody, everybody I, well, I shouldn't say everybody. A lot of people seem, and I know I'm, I'm one of the people that do this, that when things are really bad, I pray more, right? Uh, so I'm praying for help. But am I praying as um, fervently, fervor, whatever that word is, uh, yeah, that word. Um, when things are good, as you know, because we take we take the good for granted, I think, and we should be more thankful, I think, then. But well, I think that's where our characters test truly tested, uh, and we're in in some respects we're all Job, and then they're just God just waiting to see what is our character when things are good, not just when things are we going to go to Him when things are good, not just when things are bad. And you touch on something. That's the one of the points of the book. We are all Job. Job says some absolutely wrong things and makes some accusations of God in the midst of the pain. And we do that. Whether we say do it audibly or in our mouths or in our minds or in our grumbling, we don't even realize we do it. Go ahead, Rob, what we're gonna say. Yeah, Dennis hit on the things that were 
coming to me as well, which is, yeah, I know we were we were on the we were on the same vibe. So there's a couple potential errors. The one that we already mentioned, which was to assume that we actually do worship when things are going good. And then the second is is that we're only tested when things go bad. And that's what Dennis was saying. You know, we get tested when things are uh, good. And you look at the biblical examples. You look at the pagan kings that when they're on the top of their game, that's the test they fail in the midst of their prosperity. Even David, when was his biggest sin? When, and you look at Solomon. When was he at his lowest point? When Israel was at its highest point? From the world's standpoint, and on and on and on. Even the proverb says that a man is tested by his praise. Mm-hmm. So we're tested at all times, and it's easy to oversimplify in a number of different ways and say, well, it's always this and not that, or it's always that and not this. And then by avoiding one error, we back into another. Good. All right, with that, let's move on. We've got 15 minutes to finish the whole backside of this, and we've got a few more questions on the backside. Uh, let's see. The counsel from Job's three friends, um, Eliphaz, the, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuite, and Zophar, the Naamathite. Let's flip it over here. The, the axiom that they go by, their counsel is this. The principle, you might say, is because Job was experiencing suffering, he must have sinned against God. That's the axiom. That's the principle they go off of. Now, I I don't want to beat these guys up because in the past I beat these guys up. They are giving the best version known in the ancient Near East at this time. So using your terminology, they're on they're on on the top of their game God is needing to reveal more to give a bigger picture on what happens in God's care over this fallen world. So this is, the question then is, what are some aspects of their counsel that was wrong? And, and I, I'm not going to actually post that out there. I'm going to go off of some of the things Rob Roy said. Simplistic. Always the case that if suffering, you've done sin. That's oversimplification. And so they miss that point. They are assuming that the economy works, that God, when he sees an injustice, will deal with an injustice in the moment. And God's timing affects different things. We also have the injustices from outside source that come onto onto us, and we have no, we have done nothing. No, we have no responsibility of the injustice that's done to us. It was placed upon us by someone, an outside source. In this case, it's Satan wanting to do it to demonstrate to, to, to God and Job that each one is not who they say they are. Job was considered an upright man, and he wants to knock that out from underneath the, the, that premise, and as well as God as being a good and righteous God. So we can see outside sources. So they're, 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 some of their theology on that understanding can be right. 
but it's not an absolute. And they're making it an absolute. So their application of the theology is wrong. All right, so let's move on. Those are the the three friends. Their best counsel was um, the first seven days when they said nothing and they just sat with Job. Isn't that a lesson? With many words, there there is sin. There's a reminder that if we talk too long, we can really get into sin. Okay. Um, Job's initial response is a key doctrinal statement that Job unwittingly plays out. He says this. Uh, you've got it in the caps. I'm going to say it in the Hebrew. Yahweh gave and Yahweh has taken away. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. When he is using all of the three covenant names, he's constantly, I shouldn't say like they're separate, three times he uses the covenant name, you have to understand he's making a statement of faith based on what God has revealed in the covenant. So if you only see that as a name for God, you miss the faith that he's demonstrating. So in that, if you understand that, the question now is, and I do want to talk a little bit about this, and we've got maybe one comment's worth of time, What character trait or attribute is Job focusing on in that statement beyond just faithfulness? What would you say is maybe the overarching, and it can be different ones. Please don't be afraid that, you know, Nick is looking for one. If I don't say the right one, I'll look dumb in the crowd. Just just throw out some ideas, and when we get to the one that, that is the focus, I'll let you know. God's sovereignty. Boom. Done. Perfect. Thank you. We can go on. Uh, thank you, Gary. I, I, Gary was already praising the Lord for that answer. Yes, it's God's sovereignty. He makes that statement there way early on. 121. We have 40 chapters total in this book. That is supposed to be resonating with us in the midst of our journey wrestling with God through suffering. I feel this, but that. This can't be right, but, but you are sovereign. You're also good. You're also faithful. Okay, so let's continue on. The wrestling experience of Job. And this, this is where I did not see this before. And I thank Richard Belcher for this, Jr., uh, Richard Belcher Jr. for this, because this really helped me grab onto some things. Job, de- number one, Job desperately wants a chance to present the case of his integrity before God, but he also despairs that such an event will ever happen, or if, he does take, if it does take place, no one can hope to win an argument with God. I don't know about you, but when I'm wronged by somebody, I want to rush into the courtroom of my mind, and I want to let them know, if, uh, before I get to them, how I'm going to couch my argument and why they're wrong. And so I can absolutely associate with Job here. Uh, court's already being held in my mind. Two, Job continues to assert that he is innocent, and it's dealing with uh, uh, 9, 15, 16, 17, 23, 11 through 23, even as he perceives what God is part of that God is part of his problem. Now listen to how he sees God. This is a wrong statement, but we understand how he gets there. God is a hunter who pursues his prey so that death is Job's only hope. That's what he sees as his only hope. He's off. He's confused. God has no regard for the blameless or wicked, but destroys them both. They both die. See how Job gets there? In fact, God mocks the calamity of the innocent. That's what he says in 9, 22, and 23. Such statements call into question God's justice. We do the same. Now, in in these next two points, you'll start to see a a change taking place. Job explores the complexity. Here's the, the, the antithesis, the opposite direction of the simplicity. 
Job uh, explores the complexity of God's ways in the world so that his view of God is not limited to the mechanical view of deeds and consequences. That is true. What you sow, you will reap. That is a true statement, a general precept in God's economy. But it's not always. There are other factors that are work. It doesn't mean that that will always be the case. Okay, we continue on. Job explores the complexity of ways in the world so, so that his view of God is not limited to the mechanical view of deeds and consequences that his friends present, which opens the door to hope in God's sovereignty. That's Job 24. Then in point number four, Job speaks some surprising statements of hope. He asserts, when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. 23.10. Though he slays me, I will hope in him. Amazing. These are, these are statements of faith. And then this one, this is, uh, which I think is critical importance. And I know that my Redeemer lives, dot, 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 in, and I, I'm going to suggest to you, um, I don't believe it is, the word is in. The, the Hebrew will allow, that's a preposition, it can be in or away from. I believe, and I agree with those that interpret it as away from, from basically what we know of the study that Pete led us through on Sheol and what happens once Jesus Christ comes and finally rescues the captives from Sheol or Hades. So if you, rather than saying, in my flesh I shall see him, which would suggest when he's alive, after he's got his, his new incarnate body, I don't know that he has that much theology. He needs more revelation now that's not even close to this level of revelation. That's why I think, because he had a very un- good understanding in the ancient Near East world of Sheol, almost all of the cultures understood Sheol as the underworld where all the souls went as a shadowy place with no flesh. It was a place of consciousness, not sleep, you were aware of it, but, but it, and in some sense, we talked about this, it was divided into two, two sectors. Um, from one sense, you, and I'm just getting very basic, Pete talked about a third, dealing with the angelic realm, but for the, for the, the realm of the human beings, you have the, the damned and those that would one day be uh, taken out of captivity by the work of Jesus Christ. They were waiting for Christ. In some sense, that waiting place, because it was separated from the, those that were damned, was seen as... Abraham's bosom were seen as a place of paradise waiting to be in the presence, those waiting to be taken in the presence of God. So now, if you know have that in your mind, then you read it this way. And I know that my Redeemer lives, um, and then you read, away from, my, away from my flesh I shall see God. He knows that, he's, that even if God takes his life now, he will be in Sheol, but one day... He will see God. He doesn't know what the work is, but he uses the word redeemer. Kin, it's the same one that we see in kinsman redeemer. Somebody outside of me will bring rescue to me and I will see God. What a cool, cool perspective he has. I'm not sure how much he grasps what he's actually saying. I do know he has some concept of the ancient Near East concept of Sheol. So that's, that, I think that was particularly powerful for me, that point number four. Let's continue on. The Wisdom Poem. The Poem of Wisdom, um, Job 28. This is, by the way, this is Belcher's exact words. I should have put parentheses in here uh, uh, to show that these are his exact words. I didn't change a single word in here. The Poem of Wisdom highlights that although human ingenuity can do a lot of good things, it does not know how to find wisdom. 
Human beings also do not fully comprehend the worth of wisdom. The only one who understands the way to wisdom is God, who has given to man the foundation for wisdom, which is the fear of the Lord. We're going to see what is the fear of the Lord. That is a phraseology that is given to us, a concept. I'm going to give you the answer in, in just a minute here. Uh, Job 28 stresses that wisdom is unattainable on the human level. Think about our world. Do we not live in a society that has absolutely gone bonkers, thinking that they're wiser than God in all the things that they're doing right now? Which is a judgment on the speeches that have already been given by God, excuse me, by Job and his friends. What Job is saying in, in chapter 28 is in the inspired word. It goes against what Job has already said. Job has already wrongly accused God, and yet now he's using words that, that say something different about wisdom. It's fascinating that, that you've got to go back and read Job 28 sometime this week and watch it. It's just a beautiful picture. They have not spoken with wisdom. If wisdom is only found in God, then it is imperative that God would speak wisdom to this situation. What happens in chapter 38 through 40? God speaks wisdom. It's so neat to see that. Okay, let's continue on. Elihu's counsel. I have always been confused by Elihu. He seems like he gets it right. The only experience I have ever had with him, as far as pastors and other men of God, is that Elihu is just as nuts as his friends are in their counsel. And as I do not believe the case of that anymore, any longer. Let's take a look. Elihu is the only friend with a Hebrew name. Fascinating. I didn't say he was a Hebrew. I said he's the only one with a Hebrew name. Second, uh, and based on that as well, based on that context, based on a context, any context, remember, context drives the meaning of words, so even the name can change its meaning a little bit. So based on the context, Elihu can mean the, the following. Whose God is he, or he is my God, or he is God himself. Can have all, that name can have all those three meanings based on how it's being used. The additional information on the genealogy suggests that the narrator considers him a significant figure. Nothing is known about, this is what was said in the verse about his genealogy. It lists Barachal, Bar, uh, it would be Barachal, the C-H has that sound. But there was a, a ram, that's the name of a man, who was an ancestor of David. I don't hold to it being ram, ancestor of David, because I believe it's patriarchal era. But listen to the other piece of evidence. And then, and then he references Ruth 4.19, 1 Chronicles 2.9, and, and 25. And there was a, a booze connected with Abraham in Genesis 22.21. That is where I believe there may be a connection to the, the, the uh, genealogy here. Also, the fact that five chapters are devoted to Elihu more than to any one of the other three uh, friends must mean that he has something beneficial to say. The question I'm going to give you as a rhetorical question so we can get done on time is, do you think that it is significant that the Lord rebukes the other free friends but not Elihu? Did you ever catch that? Elihu is not rebuked. God says these three friends are rebuked. Fascinating. A Hebrew name, five chapters, something significant about what he says because he doesn't get rebuked for what he says. And he, re he actually rebukes Jonah. Excuse Jonah. Good, Nick. Uh, I was talking to Cindy earlier about Jonah this week. He actually uh, rebukes Job. Okay, let's go on. Point number four. An interesting nuance on the positive view is, th is that, and this is um, Belcher's exact words, is that Elihu deals with the response of Job once he is in the situation of suffering and does not deal with the main argument of whether Job is suffering because he has sinned. 
He goes right over that. He doesn't even, he doesn't suggest, he doesn't work off a premise that, that Job has sinned. Wow, that's major different than the, than the other three friends. Number five, and this one, uh, you got to go back and read this over again, the, the five chapters devoted to Elihu, to see if you believe that this statement is there. I eventually saw it. I read these chapters over and over and over again. Listen to what Belcher says here. His fundamental argument differs from his friends because he emphasizes that affliction is a matter of God's grace for their sufferer's benefit rather than a product of God's displeasure. Read the five chapters. You'll see it in there. You, I, I didn't before. Never have I seen that. No, point number six. Ultimately, Elihu's speeches function to demonstrate that human wisdom falls short, which shows the need for God to, to answer. Okay. Now, what about Behemoth and Leviathan? Always wondered why they were in the picture. Was it just because God is strong and able to, to even control them? And that's what the point of what they're saying with these two beasts? Listen to what um, Belcher has to say. And actually, some of this is Belcher and some of the other authors that I looked at. So this is a, a compilation of that. Some believe that, that, that both of these monsters, these huge uh, I say monster only, not, not to mean fictitious, although many believe they are mythical based on what was happening in the ancient Near East, and other cultures referenced these beasts. Um, I don't, I'm not going to get into whether or not they're mythical. The point is that some believe that they represent evil, but more likely, remember what we learned about Genesis. You had order in Genesis, and then sin comes in, and you have disorder. That's why I think this author really nails it. They represent disorder and danger that is out of our control. That's what these beasts Represent and think about your suffering when it's not based on your sin. Disorder in the world that, that the sin brings in and the danger and all of the consequence of that danger thrust upon you. And then the second point there, we live in a complex world that at this time, that at this time, the, the, the epoch, the error that we are living in until Christ returns again, at this time is not an italicized designed to prevent suffering. God didn't go oops when, when the fall took place, and now he's trying to micromanage or he's trying to, to do uh, management of some sort to, to fix the, the problem. No, no, God knew this would happen. By design, he allows suffering. We just talked about that suffering brings a reality to us that makes us realize we're not worshiping rightly, potentially, or that there is good that comes out of suffering. Suffering is God's economy. If you start to realize God, God uses suffering for our good, think of Romans 8, 28 and 29, then all of a sudden this economy is something that has, has value for us. It changes us. And lastly, the final lesson, to fear Yahweh. In other words, the covenant God. We are in the covenant of grace. Don't think Old Testament is covenants and New Testament is something else. If you're not in the covenant of grace, you will, seek, you will be in damnation. If, if Jesus Christ didn't do what you couldn't do, atone for your, for your sins, then, then you're not in the covenant of grace. But to fear Yahweh, our covenant-keeping God, is to trust in God's wisdom. That's the fear of the Lord. Trust in his wisdom. As sovereign over all that he has created, the affliction that we suffer that is out of our control is under the control of Yahweh, who is using it for our good. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you. I know it was fast. I pray that this... Uh, this handout will be able to be used in the week to come and the times to come when, when, when suffering comes upon each and every one of us and that we're reminded of, 
of this journey, this wrestling that Job did, and we, we are encouraged to engage in it with you, that we might experience you and, and taste and see that you are good. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.